0: Hey Trekkers, welcome to episode 62 of the GeoTrek podcast. We talk a lot about how to become more resilient from the impacts of extreme weather and natural disasters on this podcast, and this episode is very relevant for those of us interested to build better to reduce risk of damage on our homes and in our communities. Our guest this week is Julie Shayu Woodard, President and CEO of Smart Home America. Julie oversees operations, provides organizational direction, and develops partnerships for a national nonprofit whose mission is to build resilient and sustainable communities. Throughout her career, she has developed and managed environmental and hazard mitigation funding and projects in collaboration with federal, state, and local agencies. Check this out. Julie's from past Christiane, Mississippi, originally. That's the location of Hurricane Katrina's highest storm surge, which is the highest storm surge level on record in the Western Hemisphere. So a very hazard-prone place is where she's from there in past Christiane. Now she lives in Mobile, Alabama, just east of there along the I-10 corridor with her husband and two children. If you're new to the podcast, GeoTrek investigates the impact of extreme weather and natural disasters on individuals and communities. Our goal is to help you improve your decision-making, risk assessment, and communication related to extreme events so you can take action to make yourself, your family, and your community more resilient. Hey, before we jump into this conversation with Julie, we have a quick favor to ask of you. We'd really appreciate it if you would share this content with one other person. That's right. Just one person who you know who's interested to build better and mitigate against storm damage. If we all do that, it'll really get the message out and there'll be a lot of people that are built better and safer when they face extreme weather in the future. Hey, if you want to post a link of this on your social media as well, you can share with more than one person if you so desire. Well, hey, let's jump into episode 62 now with Julie Shayu Woodard, president and CEO of Smart Home America. Welcome to the GeoTrek Podcast. This is going to be a great one, very applicable no matter where you live. We're going to be talking all about how to build better today. We have a special guest, Julie Shaiu Woodard, President and CEO of Smart Home America. Welcome to the GeoTrek Podcast. Thank
1: you very much, Hal. Thank you for having me today.
0: We're recording here live in our studios in Mobile. It's a nice setting and really appreciate you taking time to come and have a conversation with us. Absolutely. So, Julie, uh, you're President and CEO of Smart Home America. Could you walk us through your professional journey? I mean, how kind of what was the path that led you to this position and this awesome work that you're doing?
1: So I started out in a regional planning commission and was and worked my way into a principal planning position in an environmental planning department. And in our department we are very unique in that we took on we kind of took on all the projects that didn't fall into the traditional other departments. Sure. So we sort of coined ourselves as We took on social and environmental resiliency projects, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And we were project management, in a sense, where we served 26 municipalities, three counties. And we looked to figure out how to make those communities better, especially from a mitigation standpoint. So what were their hazards? How did they need to mitigate? And then where do they find that funding, right? Um, I spent... Quite a few years in wildfire risk um, oh, really? and in the wildland urban interface as a um, wildland urban interface specialist with um, a state forestry agency and and then I worked I've just done a lot of different paths you know it's one of those Jane of all trade kind of things yeah there you go um, and so those are the most interesting people right, right? Um, so I I I hope so I I basically I just I've always been in a role where there was a problem, had to figure out the solution, had to find the funding to get that solution done, had to get the solution implemented to the end, right? So it's it's always been sort of that kind of a path. And when it came to hazards, I was when I was working on my graduate work, I was looking at um, from a South Alabama perspective, why do the elderly, um, sometimes not evacuate, even when they're told they need to evacuate. Sure. Like, why don't they evacuate? And my hypothesis was that it was faith-based or religion. Uh, just because I had so many that would say, um, you know, when my time comes, it's my time. It doesn't matter where I am. Kind
0: of a bit fatalistic.
1: It, it is. But if you are um, from that generation and you're from the deep south and you um, hold that faith very dear, so, we did a very extensive open ended survey. Um, we partnered with a home health agency that went into homes regularly, and we um, had the, um, the nurses and the technicians help us get the survey done. And, and we ended up pretty solidly proving that it was a, a religion. But it, it came to, it was after a storm where also an elected official's neighbor was on oxygen, and she didn't have family, and she didn't evacuate, and there was no power. So what does she do, right? And so of all of that, the impetus started that we, and this was so long ago, um, I actually wrote a grant to start the special needs um, shelters that we have in South Alabama, and that took on a life of its own. And I worked in a planning commission, so it was easy for the local communities to do that. And so that was kind of my path into... I guess, hazard mitigation in that sense. And then, really, I just got a phone call one day when I was in my last um, state position, and they told me about Smart Home America, and they said that they were looking for somebody to take over the leadership role, and and the colleague who called me said, I really think this is a fit for you. And so I called one of the board members that was on the search committee and talked to him, and interviewed for the job and ended up getting it. And this is that job that if you were lucky enough to get that job, you realize that every bit of everything you've experienced in your entire career prepared you for that job. Sure, sure. And so that's this job for me. So everything I did in local and state government, in in I was in a national nonprofit for a little while, um, all of that, all of that prepared me for the job I'm in now. So, and I've been in it for eight years now. I never wake up any given morning and hate that I'm getting up to go to work. Yeah, it sounds like you love it. You're passionate uh, about. Do, it. I do very much love my job, um, and it's it's. I think I love it so much because m- many times when you're working on big like hazard mitigation projects or you're working on big project management things, you really never see the total outcome. Sure. You definitely don't see where there was a need, there was a problem, and you absolutely solve that problem. Um, uh, especially in government, because there's so many layers of challenges there. And so I, I think that's what's that's the coolest thing about this job is that when we are transforming the mentality, I would say, of how people think, well, we've done this the same way sure. forever, why why change, and we actually can get them to the other side, um, that's really satisfying. and it's also we are truly impacting lives. Sure. So it's more of a, okay, this is one of the reasons I'm alive on this planet today, because I know how to fix that problem, and we're fixing that problem.
0: It's very purposeful. Very purposeful. Julie, could you explain to our listeners an overview of what the mission statement is for Smart Home America?
1: So our job and why we exist is to create sustainable and resilient communities. And that simply just means making sure that people understand that there are solutions to all the challenges we see. A lot of what we do now, especially with the more open reality of climate risk, um, because there are way more people that are understanding that, there, yes, there is a such thing as climate risk, and yes, we are feeling the effects of it. and And so now that we have more people on board with understanding that there is a risk, they're more willing to identify what their community level risks are okay. uh, from that climate change. And they're willing to sit and listen to the possibilities. And our job are to bring those possibilities. And that could be science agencies, um, companies that work to, you know, maybe analyze their risk. Really, we connect dots. We do a lot of consensus yeah. building. Um, we do a lot of bringing everybody to the table, having them all agree that they understand what their risks are and where their risks are. And then who do they need to bring to the table to help them solve all of those problems. Um, And, and we grab those things that are proven based in science, um, best management practices. And then if there's a hole, like if there's something that's missing, um, we don't do everything. So we look for the expert that does that and then bring them to the table as well.
0: Julie, it sounds like you do a lot of partnerships at the local level. Do you feel like that helps communities get more engaged when you're going out to them? You're working at that almost like local grassroots type of level. Uh, Yes. How does how is that interaction different with people?
1: So a lot of times I'll say we work at the grassroots and grass tops, right? So local and state level. Um, And that is so we don't live in every state. Um, we, we are gaining ground in many states every day. I think we're probably in 15 or 16 states now. And we go into that community because we're asked. So we don't just airdrop in um, unannounced. We're usually asked to come help to, to figure out a problem. And it's usually a resilience problem. So it's usually a hurricane, tornado, flood type issue. And we bring those key players to the table. We get to know them and understand what they see is important and what their risks are. And then really a lot of what we do is try and identify that entity that when we get in the car or on the plane and leave, that that's the local number they're gonna call. So we're partnering with either a nonprofit or a state agency or even a national organization that's basically, that understands the risk and then we bring them up to speed on that resilience mitigation action and then we let them carry that.
0: Um, so so we, we, you kind of come alongside some of these yeah. local entities that are already established right. and just help kind of give them more resources. Right,
1: exactly. So we, we very much partner with local groups and just empower them to understand that there is a way to fix it. Um, a, a lot of times we'll come in with a Habitat for Humanity affiliate, because uh, a lot of what we do is construction, or not we don't construct anything right, but we influence the way things are constructed. And so we are looking for that nonprofit that is building or re-roofing in a community, and they're looking for that next best thing for their clients. Um, Or we come in with custom home builders. So it's very interesting, Habitat and custom home builders are very similar in that they're always looking for the next best product for their family, the family that is their client, that they're doing something for that home or building that home new. And so they are more open to building a different way, because that's what they're doing. They're looking for for Habitat, it's what is the best home for that family to have for that to be their forever home. And for custom builders, they're looking for the next best product that their customers
0: will appreciate. Julie, I know one of the entities you also partner with is the Fortified program. Could you explain like how does Smart Home work with Fortified and explain a little bit about what Fortified is if you could?
1: So the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety creates the science that establishes the standard of the fortified home, commercial, and multifamily programs. And it is a way to build, and it's slightly beyond code. So I will say that the International Residential Code 2021 very much comes very, very close um, to the fortified standard, but there's still a few missing pieces there. And so Fortified is just a better way of building based on research in the lab and then ground truth on the ground. So IBHS is a communication and research institute. They do the research and then they communicate those results. And they're a really cool organization. It's lots of architects and engineers and meteorologists and they are figuring out how buildings work as a system and what are those weak links and then how do you mitigate that. And our job and what we see is that we take that science and we integrate it in a permanent way at the local level. So you can go in and after a disaster, be a nonprofit that builds a home back or re-roofs hundreds of homes. But if you don't influence the way the policy is done at the local and state level, then that's a one-time fix. And everybody that's around all of those structures that were mitigated didn't get mitigated. And so a lot of what we do outside of just educating everybody on how to build better is we educate on why they need to choose different policies and different regulations so that going forward, they're ready for the next storm, and the next storm, and the next storm.
0: I see, so this is more than just helping people come in and rebuild after the storm. This is really influencing like policy and how building is done in a certain area.
1: Yes, absolutely, because that's your long-term, that's your long-term resilience fix, basically, is that you, you're always gonna have more building stock than new builds. Yeah. And that building stock is aging from the day the last nail is, or screw, is put in, right? It starts aging. And with every storm, it takes the impacts of that storm and it takes, and it gets a fatigue, and right? So every storm increases the fatigue of that building. And so, and we always say, every home with a 30-year mortgage is gonna have to be re-roofed at some point. So if you're gonna re-roof, why not put the best available roof on there? Um, In the best method possible so that you don't necessarily experience a loss in a convective storm. And we have a ton of those.
0: I know there's a real geography to the Fortified Project. At one point, I think there was a real bullseye on South Alabama with maybe like 17,000 fortified homes. How did that come to be? Like, how did South Alabama take leadership on this?
1: So part of that is that smart home originates here in Mobile, Alabama, and we came to be as an as a group after Ivan and Katrina. So Ivan hit in 2004 and 11 months later Katrina hit and we didn't we, we suffered in both storms, but we didn't have the catastrophic loss that Mississippi and Louisiana did in, in Katrina. However, we suffered the we, we suffered the same loss that they did in the insurance pulled out so we were put into a crisis, literally like in an overnight situation where homes that had no damage or had no claim in Katrina started receiving non-renewal letters from their insurance companies.
0: So these people are saying, wait up, I had no damage. Right. Why are you pulling out? And right. it was the bigger scope, the bigger picture. It right? was the
1: bigger picture. And so so you had mortgages in crisis because you can't have a mortgage without insurance. And if you can't get an insurer to insure you, then your mortgage holder will do a force place policy, which is always extremely expensive and not seriously a great policy. So it's not as comprehensive as maybe the policy you shot. And so, so we kind of were in a crisis pretty quickly and many thought leaders came to the table, many of them insurance agents themselves, came to the table with elected officials and code officials and business leaders and said, okay, this is bad. You know, we we can't move forward and we can't can't prosper this way. What are we going to do? And the original, what turns out to be the original founders of Smart Home, um, sat down and said, okay, there's got to be a better way. Because, like, we built 11 months ago when Ivan hit. Okay, and that didn't work, right? Because you still had loss. And so why do we keep this, that cycle of insanity, right? So why do we keep building the same exact way that isn't necessarily resistant to hurricanes? Is there a better way? And so at that point, they did, they reached out and they just looked at everything across the United States and they came across Fortified and they came across the Insurance Institute for Business and Safety. At that time, Fortified was a different program and it wasn't easily obtainable by everybody. So it was really cost prohibitive. And so only a few people could take that on. And that actually helped Fortified go, okay. We have to do something so that everybody can access this way of building, which is how it went from fortified for safer living, which some people still remember, to fortified home. And it was instead of being an all peril way of building, which is cost prohibitive because you're building for every peril you could possibly. And, you know, so if you were building here to that standard, you're dealing with wildfire, hurricane, tornado, hail, flood. Right. And it's so really hard to really prepare hard. for all of these hazards. Right. It's expensive. Right. And so what home does fortified home looks at what is the main peril that you face and that's the house that you are you looking to build for that right so for us in the gulf of mexico it's hurricanes that's sure. our largest threat yes everybody um has some in some areas we have, do have hail yes in some areas we have in the gulf we have well we have more tornadoes now than we've had in sure. a long time right um but in general it's those hurricane in, winds in and in storm general surge. it's the hurricane winds and And Fortified doesn't address flood and why, right? Because flood is a significant risk because the private insurance market um, doesn't, you know, they don't write that risk. There are private flood companies, but as in the general, right, flood industry doesn't write that risk. So they don't with the research money into figuring that
0: out. I understand, they're really writing wind, so they want to know right. how can these roofs, especially, right. well, the whole home, but especially the roof, I think, deal with these really strong hurricane right. winds.
1: So their biggest perils are wind, wind-driven rain, hail, and wildfire. That's what they're writing, and that's what they're looking to influence when they're trying to get a house or a business be built to where they know it's going to be a reduced risk of loss if that peril affects that property.
0: Sure. Julie, 2020 was such a catastrophic hurricane season. And in the mix of all these storms was Hurricane Sally, a slow-moving, upper-level Cat 2 hurricane that was almost Cat 3 that had a bullseye right on South Alabama. In this area where we had so many fortified homes, what did we learn from Sally?
1: So Sally was our biggest test, and it was our biggest test because we had the largest number of structures designated. And so of those 17,000, 95% of them had little to no damage. And the way I explain that is that they, they, many of them didn't have enough damage that they triggered insurance. If they did, it was a, a tree, like, and fortified can't stop a tree from falling on your house. Um, or it was an outbuilding that, that caused an insurance claim. And so the, that was the biggest test we had, but what it proved was that you can absolutely shorten that recovery period. So there was damage, right? But there wasn't enough damage that those families were displaced. Um, So you didn't have the water intrusion into the house through the roof that puts everybody in a hotel room of families. That's right. You know, they have to move in with a family or they have to be in a camper or something. And so that was our largest test. And it was so important because... You know it's one of those cry wolf things right? You've been talking about this for so That's many right. years like we know it works, we know it works. And there were like one off and we'd have a thousand maybe like the the Carolinas had a couple of tests where we had a thousand homes in the path which was great. We had absolutely amazing results there. It was a 95% result level there. But nobody believes you until you really have like right. that proof point. And so Sally was that proof point for us where we could show that Um, you can keep people in their house. And even if it was a higher level, and they had to evacuate, we knew that if they came back, they'd still be able to open that front door. And they may not have had power, but they would have been able to sleep in their beds and start recovering. What is that bigger picture, right? That is, you're not, the economy's not taking the hit that you see after a significant event. Um, And and when people can't recover in an amount of time that is what's considered normal, right, then they have to move. And once they move, and they establish their life somewhere else, it's very hard for them to come back, especially if they have children and the children are in school system. And so, you know, that's a lot of why when we see these bigger events with the upper level Cat 3s, 4s, and 5s, you know, your community doesn't come back the way it was. That's right.
0: right. It just it's just displaces so many people displaces. and really disrupts their lives sometimes. I mean, we know when you get that water damage for a lot of people, it's months to, you know, maybe even more than a half a year that they're out of their home. Right, exactly. And if it's a significant, like a Harvey
1: um, or a Laura or an Ida, I mean, the average recovery for a community after significant events like that, it's sometimes six to eight years, sure. right? You're not getting some of your, you're not getting some of those families that were there forever, they may not be coming back. And so, and, and then the next biggest test we had was, it was Ida. We had fortified structures in Louisiana. We had, um, from, from one end of the spectrum to the other from price points. So, we had homes in the lower ninth ward that had simply just been re roofed by our partner and nonprofit SBP, who've been there since Katrina and have done amazing work in getting people to a more resilient level. Those homes, Nobody was displaced. Roofs were fine, but if you look at some of the aerials of where those homes were, there's blue roofs everywhere except for those homes that were re-roofed to the fortified standard.
0: That's right. And let's talk about this 2020 2021 South Louisiana is hit by two upper-level Cat four hurricanes. I know you've been spending a lot of time now in Louisiana on the backside of those storms, just really helping promote smart home and everything. Could you explain a little bit about this work going on in Louisiana? And what is is your favorite type of gumbo? I'm curious. I'm sure you've had a lot of gumbo in the last couple of years here. Okay, so
1: gumbo is sensitive, right? It's almost like um you can there those are almost fighting words when you talk about recipe. It's very personal. Um I actually judge restaurants on their gumbo because I'm I am a a my family is French, old French. So I have I have family in the very, very tip of Venice, Louisiana, right? Way so down there on the boot, huh? Way way down there. Um so it's I like okra in my gumbo. A lot of people don't like okra in my gumbo. I will have tomatoes in my gumbo. A lot of people don't like tomatoes in my gu- in their gumbo. Um, so yeah, gumbo is so, so then, going back to Louisiana <laughs> for
0: you, it's very familiar. Yes, it's kinda it kind of ties in with your family.
1: It is very familiar. Um, I, I think that the most interesting thing about Louisiana is that after Katrina, they put in place a unified code, and that was a. That was huge for a southern state. Um, You you can't hold Florida in a sense because they, Hurricane Andrew changed the way Florida right worked, and that brought in the Miami Dade and the Florida Code. But the rest of the states didn't do anything, right? Um, It was code was sparsely put in place. It was jurisdictional, wasn't state. Louisiana said okay. Hurricane Katrina, we don't ever want to see this level of destruction. They lost so much of their population. So they put in a unified code. So they, that was heralded as a very big decision. And they were told that they would see affordable insurance because they had this code in place, which was considered a good code. But if you don't enforce that code, then insurance doesn't really have faith that they're really writing a structure that they are not gonna lose everything every time they turn around and they're gonna rebuild it and lose it
0: again and again. Right, so you can put this code out there, but if it's right. not enforced by a third party, does it mean anything? Right,
1: and so we'd actually been on the ground in Louisiana before COVID, because we what we call there were, were, there were points bubbling up, right? So we had points around the state that were starting to bubble up where there were more positive conversations about, we really need to think about building better. We need to think about building differently there was a concern that was growing. um, And this was before Laura. And so, and then COVID hit, and we'd been working with the Office of Community Development in Louisiana before COVID, because they actually said, we wanna step into this resiliency and we wanna take some of our, um, basically, community block grant disaster recovery funds that a state, every state can get this, it's called a bucket, basically, of money. And it is to rebuild. And so they chose to jump into, let's do this. And we're going to do this from a multifamily standard. And so that was a two-year process of them getting ready to put those packets out, which is a proposal, right? And then bids come in. And there were, and we walked with them with that. And so then COVID hits. You know, everybody knows what happened during that time. And construction starts during that period of these multifamilies. So these are going to be the very first ever in the United States multifamily structures built to the fortified commercial standard utilizing basically disaster recovery money. Um, And so the first one is 95% to completion in construction process um, when Ida passes over it. And, it, and the eye passes over it. So in Lockport, Louisiana, um, there is this multifamily, and, and remind I'm reminding you that nobody really understands fortified technically, right? The developers that are doing this just know they had to to yeah. win the bid, right? Gotcha. To get the points that they wanted sure. to. They had to say, all right, we're going to build this fortified thing.
0: Okay,
1: yeah. So everybody's learning because this is where you just everybody jumps sure. in. It's baptism by fire. And the, the um, developer doesn't know how it's going to fare, Ida's approaching, they had gotten an insurance policy on that like three hours before Ida's named, and if anybody that's listening is not in the Gulf of Mexico, then you don't know that if you don't have insurance the way you want it, the moment a storm enters the Gulf and is named, you can't do anything they close to it your, out, don't they? nobody can do anything to their insurance policies. Yeah. Um, which is why many of us always say shop your insurance every 12 months, be ready for hurricane yep. season or storm season if you're in a tornado area. So we're all holding our breath because we know that we've got projects going on, but we don't yep. know what they're going to look like. So the builder, the construction company that's building this um, get in strategically get in with the crews coming in to assess damage. so they they sort of meld in and get in because, also, if you're in this world, you know, you don't get in for days until sure, they sure. say, Yes, you can come in. And they pass a development that they'd done years before, an apartment complex multifamily, and it is obliterated. So their heart sinks because they're like, Oh because if this you're a powerful storm. If you're building a new if you're building a new complex and you get hit by a cat four, you're gonna lose a lot of money. Yeah, sure. There's a difference there and sure. that it was operational. How, so they're driving. It's a 0.5 difference, and they come around the corner, and this place looks like nothing happened. Wow! So there's the HVAC units were not completely strapped in place. They were just set on these yeah. um, platforms. They've like blown around like cotton balls in a way. Sure. And so there's some um, cosmetic damage, some siding damage from basically from the HVAC units, and but otherwise. I mean, the the day after picture of this multifamily was like, okay, that's it. We now know how to build single family. We now know how to build commercial multifamily. The conversation's over. We know what to do.
0: Well, you get that test of that storm, right? Everyone has ideas and theories, but when the big storm comes knocking on your door and you do well, then it's like, okay, we know this works.
1: Right, because everybody's been building the same way forever. Sure. And, and, by luck, right, some of those structures have gone through storms, but they've been fine. And so, we always remind everybody, but every storm your house goes through, there's been a fatigue on that yeah, house. That's right. And at some point, that house is going to fail. There's going to be a failure point, because that's just the way it is. And so... For for all of us, we sort of called that our mic drop in a sense. Yeah. Because it was sort of that last frontier. We knew how to do single family residential, we knew how to do commercial type properties, but multifamily was a little bit different. It's still commercial, but it was it was different. And so and there were eleven other projects that had won those bids, right? Wow. That were in construction. Um and and all of the ones that were in significant construction did fantastic. Yeah, you know, some of them had walls up, right? No windows in place. They still did fine in Ida, and then we had some homes on Grand Isle that had been built to the fortified standard. And now these were not inexpensive homes, right? These were vacation homes, but these were homes that day after, right? And and Grand Isle is the furthest inhabitable island yeah. off Louisiana, sure. Um, the island took so much damage, so much damage. But the homes that were built to the standard, again, you just couldn't tell that they'd been through, sure. a, you know, a cat four. And when once they put potable, potable water hookup and um, generation power, they had line workers in some of these homes yeah. that were trying to get the power back. So it was, Ida was, we had a very small N number, right? But it was a much greater test because sure. it was such an intense
0: and. Really now, post-IDA, it sounds like South Louisiana is really embracing Fortified, and the numbers are growing tremendously, right?
1: It is. And so sadly, um, Laura and IDA did to their market what Ivan and Katrina did to ours. So they are are truly in the same space that we were as Alabamians, where the insurance market just went, okay, Uncle, we give. Like, we're out. We're going to pull out. Like, we just can't take this risk anymore, and... And Louisiana is such a high-risk state when it comes to hurricane and to flooding. And so there has been a seismic shift in the attitude towards going a little bit beyond code because getting that fortified designation is the confidence that the insurance industry needs for them to want to write a property in a high-risk zone. So. They may write, but they won't take on so much risk that it's going to cause them financial um, distress because an insurance company is not a nonprofit and they have to balance their book. And so they can only write so much high risk to
0: balance the low risk. Do you think at some point the number of fortified roofs in Louisiana may equal and surpass what's happened in Alabama?
1: I think think it's going to make a huge leap. Um, they they are upgrading their code. So January one, they moved to the IRC twenty twenty one code, which is the closest code to fortified at this point because it has the sealed roof deck or the secondary water barrier within the code as a requirement of the base code. Um, twenty eighteen had it in there, but you had to op- you had to option yep. it right. You had to say, "Yep, we want to sure. do that." And so 2021, that base code is putting in that secondary water barrier, and that's the game changer because that's what keeps that water from getting into a home when the shingles are lost. Because shingles will come off in the right amount of wind, but if you can keep the water out from coming in between that decking on your roof, That is the difference between you having to find a hotel room or staying. Yeah, it's
0: amazing to me that it took so long for a building to say, wait, shingles will come off. We need to seal that, right? Right. Yeah, it did. Yeah, but I mean, great job from y'all to say like, okay, this is something we definitely want to promote. We want to have people with that sealed roof deck so that if they do lose shingles, they don't have water cascading down into their living space.
1: And I will say that it's... um, you know, people, I I always sort of tell everybody, I'm like, I'm going to tell you this, but it's. I'm not being cynical. It's just the truth is that people will not make a difference until it's affecting them financially, right? Because everybody is just busy, right? Life is busy and everything is chaotic all the time. And until you feel a pain, right, you don't make a difference. Um, And for some of us, we'll feel that pain for a very, very long time before we make a choice to do something different. And so from the insurance industry's perspective they were writing these really big checks on yeah. homes that weren't cosmetically yeah. really damaged but there was all this loss because the water was pouring in once the the roof was lost and so like okay we're really kind of tired of this this is like a replacing yeah. every time we turn around how do we fix this problem and and that's where the insurance institute for business and home safety put the research in and the years of of testing and said okay We know how to do this. And it's actually quite simple and totally affordable. We just need to cover up where the water can get in when the shingles blow off. And so hence comes the fortified standard in...
0: That concept of building better when you actually need to because you're feeling financial pain or some pinch point it kind of reminds me of human health right people <laughs> I, I need to i need to eat healthier <laughs> i know i'm getting around to it but then all of a sudden you have a stroke or a heart attack and you're like okay right. like it's changing today right like yeah, it is. the 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 consequences is, is evident that kind of seems like what's happened with the building with the built environment in these hazard prone areas right
1: right i think So it's so much like the medical world, right? You'll limp on your knee for two and three years before you just go, okay, I really need to do something about my knee. Um, So the reality is is that even if you don't understand the science behind climate risk, there's no way to escape the fact that we have really intense storms happening. And we have storms acting differently, doing things that... All of our track records, right, are are kind of pushing us and that you can't escape that. That's not like nobody's making that up. Right. I mean, Ian was a little bit different for all of us. Right. It was trajectory. Its trajectory sure. kind of shocked everybody and look at the loss that we saw. Right. So you really just have to make a decision to build better from day one because you really have to be prepared for the yeah. unknown. Yeah. Because we have amazing science and we have amazing subject matter experts that can help us make plans. But when you build something, I mean, that's pretty much it, right? You've just dumped a whole bunch of money into a structure that you can't tear down and rebuild just because you've decided there's a better way. It's a long-term commitment. It's a very long-term commitment. And for many families in the United States, it's their largest financial investment. So I think the, the minds are sort of coming around to okay, we really have to do this at the beginning. We have to make this better choice at the beginning. But that can't happen unless the political will of a jurisdiction is behind it. Because homeowners don't know what's being... They don't know codes. They don't understand if their house is being built to or not being built to a code. Um, And so they just think it's being built to the best ability of that builder and the best code. And that is not necessarily the case.
0: Julie, when you talk about the political will in a place, and I wanna wrap up with this because it's so important uh, this concept, all these different pieces fitting together, like the state providing grant money or like there being a building code, there being inspectors, how this, re, how the real estate community fits into this. I've heard kind of these rumors through my years of traveling through disaster prone areas, and I want to hear from you. I mean, it, it almost seems like in some areas where fortified has really taken root, even like homeowners that want to buy, they'll talk to a realtor and say, I want a fortified home. Could you kind of explain how all this has kind of like, Fit together in a place like South Alabama and where Louisiana is moving towards as well.
1: So if you if you go back to when the first pieces of legislation were passed, right, um, there were lots of things passed, but nobody knew what it was and they didn't understand it. So once they got educated and understand and understood the difference, there, we started having fortified homes built and re-roofed. Once we had that happen, that house technically should sell for more, right? Uh, especially if it's next to a house that's not fortified. So it took a minute for the market to go, oh yeah, that is probably true. So we partnered with the University of Alabama and Insurance Institute for Business Home Safety and Auburn University and Ole Miss. And we had to have research done. We had to show that that house was worth more, right? And so there was a, a value study done that's been replicated and held that a home that's built and designated or re-roofed and designated to fortified should resell at an on average at sure. about 7% more. Okay, right there realtors are very more interested in something that sells more right because they're they're not nonprofits and they are looking for that house that they can sell for um, a good price so you have insurance affects your mortgage you can get a little bit more mortgage if you get really good insurance if your insurance is really expensive your mortgage gets a little bit smaller right so that affects that family's choice and what they they buy or what they build um it, it, it all ties together financially. And if you are a homeowner that cannot afford to re-roof and you don't have an incident that makes you trigger insurance, then you have to have an incentive to basically do something different to your house. And so a grant program to help you overcome that financial barrier to make a different decision on that aging roof helps you get that re-roof. So we have a grant program. I mean, we really over the last... 13 years smart home america with all of the partners and that's all the state agencies and local agencies said okay why isn't this working and we identified the problem and it and it it was either not understanding so that's education or it was financial there has to be a way to finance this and there has to be a result if you're going to make something better then it has to be valued differently and so over the last 13 years we've just sort of worked out all the bugs
0: Yeah, for sure. And it sounds like that grant program that was available in Alabama now has become available in Louisiana as well, It will.
1: It is is going live in January in the sense that the structure is going live and they're working to get the money into the program. But yes, they are going to move forward with the grant program.
0: Yeah, Julie, thank you so much for taking time to come on the podcast. This is really cool. I feel up to date. I've always been really impressed by what Smart Home America is doing. And it's just cool to hear how y'all are kind of expanding into other hazard-prone states and just how the work is engaging more and more communities and hopefully keeping communities resilient, keeping people in their homes and just helping people endure these storms.
1: Well, it's absolutely fantastic to see you and to catch up and visit. So I appreciate being asked to come today. Thanks.
0: We've been listening to a live interview here in our studios in Mobile, Alabama, with Julie Shayu Woodard, president and CEO of Smart Home America. Julie, uh, best wishes. Hopefully next storm season isn't a terrible one. But if it is, it seems like you, the work that you and your colleagues have been doing is really preparing folks for uh, to become more resilient in the face of these storms. Thank you, sir. This podcast provided insights on the great work that Smart Home America is doing to help people build better and mitigate storm losses on their homes. This conversation with Julie Shaiyud Woodard covered a lot of ground, and here are th- some take-home points that I thought were really exceptional, really three things that stood out to me from our conversation. Number one, Smart Home America was launched in South Alabama after Hurricane Ivan in 2004 and Hurricane Katrina in 2005 made insurance really skittish about writing policies in the region. Even if your home wasn't impacted, it was there was really a fear that after Katrina in this region that insurance was going to completely pull out. In light of this insurance uncertainty and scare, which could have led to really a financial crisis in the region, Smart Home America partnered with other organizations like the Fortified Project to help homeowners build better and ease the mind of the insurance industry. A similar set of circumstances is happening now in Louisiana, following Cat 4 hurricane strikes from Laura in 2020 and IDA in 2021. Smart Home America and Fortified Home have partnered in that state and are making great inroads in Louisiana as many homes are now being built to a higher standard. Number two, I love these stories that Julie shared about real-world tests on building practices from actual hurricanes. Hurricane Sally in 2020, which really impacted South Alabama, was really the biggest test to date as it impacted a region with 17,000 fortified roofs. Post-storm assessment showed that 95% of these homes held up with no major damage, enabling families to stay in their home after the storm fortified homes also held up very well in cat 4 hurricane ida in louisiana in 2021 not only for single family residential homes but also for multi multi-family structures as well in fact ida's wins put to test the first fortified multi-family building funded with disaster recovery money and the building performed exceptionally well it's always great to hear these success stories on the geotrack podcast Number 3. Smart Home America's success can be attributed to their strategy to come alongside and equip partners who are locally based and already on the ground. Partner organizations like Habitat for Humanity and Custom Home Builders are already on the ground in many disaster-prone communities looking for methods to improve their building practices. This enables Smart Home America to come alongside them and introduce them to projects like Fortified Home, which connects key organizations, enabling them to work together and make the built environment more resilient. We also learned that Julie likes okra in her gumbo and even tomatoes. Surely she's been eating lots of it, lots of gumbo there in South Louisiana as she's been spending time to help Louisianans build better following these recent active hurricane seasons. Well, Julie, thanks so much again for coming on the podcast. Your insights were amazing. And really, congratulations on the great work you're doing, and we can't wait to follow you in the future. Thanks as well to our listeners for tuning in and sharing this content with your friends and family who live in disaster-prone communities. And of course, a huge thank you, as always, to our friends on the GeoTrek marketing team who help get the word out about applied science that we cover every week, like this episode with Julie Shayu Woodard. Thanks for tuning in and we'll catch you next week when we talk about the Arctic blast that inflicted shocking impacts on hundreds of millions of Americans in December 2022, just last month. We'll look at what caused it, what the impacts were, and how to prepare for such events in the future. Stay alert and resilient, everyone. I'm Dr. Hal, and I'll catch you on the next episode of the GeoTrek Podcast.